Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, and today we have an incredible guest, Liz Ann Saunders, who is the Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab. That means that she and her team oversee the assets, almost $8 trillion in client assets that are invested into the stock market. So if you want to learn from someone who is truly in tune with everything that's going on with the economy, this is going to be an incredible episode for you. I'll just let you know that we don't talk that much about the specifics of real estate or the housing market. But I assure you, if you invest in literally anything, you are going to want to hear what Liz Ann has to say. She has some of the most sophisticated, but honestly, really digestible and easy to understand opinions about what is going on, not just in the stock market, but in the bond market and how that correlates to the broader economy and by way of the broader economy also correlates to real estate. So just I'm going to just stop talking because this show is going to be so great. I'm so excited to share it with all of you. We're going to take a quick break, but then we'll be right back with Liz Ann Saunders, who's the chief investment strategist for Charles Schwab. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A. Biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Liz Ann Saunders, thank you so much for joining us here on The Market. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. For an audience who doesn't know you already, can you just introduce yourself and what you do for Charles Schwab? Sure. So um, Lizanne Saunders, I'm the Chief Investment Strategist at uh, Schwab. I've been in uh, this role and at Schwab for 23 years. Uh, I was 13 years, um, 14 years prior to that at another firm. So I've been in the business for 37 years. My, my role at, at Schwab, I, I guess, would be best termed as an interpreter of what's going on in the combination of the economy and financial markets, in particular the U.S. equity market, and trying to connect the dots between the economy and the market and share perspectives and advice and uh, learnings and tips with our eight plus trillion dollars worth of uh, client wow. accounts, oh um, almost all of which are essentially individual investors. So we're big. <laughs> That's a lot of assets under management. Yes. Very, very, very uh, hefty client uh, portfolio you manage there. So we, you know, the people who listen to this audience, I don't want to generalize everyone. Some of them are certainly experts in equities, but most of us are primarily real estate investors. So could you just start by giving us an update on what the state of the stock market is at this point in 2023? Sure. So this is this has been an incredibly unique. Uh, cycle, both for the stock market and the economy over the past three and a half years for for obvious pandemic related reasons. you you had the the pandemic, very brief pandemic recession and in turn bear market and stocks, and then courtesy of massive stimulus, both monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, you sort of launched out of that very brief recession as well as a very brief uh, bear market and and had a couple of very strong years. Uh, last year was a much more difficult year, obviously, for the equity market with the market topping out at the very, very beginning of the year. And the, the chief culprit behind the bear market was what has been the most aggressive rate hiking cycle in, the, in the, at least the 40, past 40 years in terms of Fed policy. And that was the 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 key reason why the market um, went into bear territory. You had a relatively recent bottom in October. The market has had a an extraordinarily strong move up off that um, October low. Burning questions around: Is it just a rally within an ongoing bear market, or did that represent the start of a, do, a new bull market? To some degree, I'm not sure the semantics matter all that uh, much. I think that the recent consolidation in the market has been driven by actually stronger than expected economic data, which meant yields have moved well back up again. 
and concerns that maybe the Fed isn't quite finished. And and I I grew up in this business working for the late great Marty Zweig, who actually coined the phrase "Don't fight the Fed." So that was certainly uh, the market was not fighting the Fed last year. Is fighting the Fed a little bit now. Um, so I don't think we're out of the woods yet. There's a lot of uncertainty, but this is the nature of the equity market. Um, you know, there's bull markets and there's bear markets. So what do you think has driven the run up in the stock market this year, uh, whether it's, you know, part of a bear market or bull market, as you said, that's semantics. But what is driving the the inflow of capital or the investor sentiment that's led to this run up in prices? So I think there were several contributors uh, when if you go back to last October, when we started this move up off those recent lows. Some of it was actually the retreat in bond yields that we were starting to see, where you had had about a week after the equity market bottomed, you saw the 10-year treasury yield uh, peak uh, up around where it is right now at about 4.2%. And you subsequently saw that yield drop almost a full percentage point. And that became a pretty powerful tailwind behind uh, equities. Um, there was also um, a, 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 a sort of a budding impression or hope that the Fed, because of how aggressive they had been, that they were getting close to the point that they could pause rate hikes. That ultimately got pushed further into this year than what was originally expected, but that was a basis for the move higher. And then there's another old adage for uh, around market performance, which is the market likes to climb a wall of worry. So oftentimes, uncertainty, um, weak or perceived or otherwise economic conditions aren't necessarily negative for the market because of that sort of contrarian sentiment perspective that the stock market often uh, displays. And then what particularly happened to narrow the market's performance was the banking crisis that started in early March with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. That was the point where the market became very heavily concentrated up the capitalization spectrum, a very small handful of names, the Super 7, the Magnificent 8, whatever you know, fun <laughs> label you want to apply to it was driving 100% of the performance. And I think that unique part of this move up was driven by the banking crisis. We want to go into highly liquid names that have strong balance sheets and, and cash flow. It was sort of this era's defensive type names, those techie kind of names. That in and of itself, though, represented a risk for the market. And I think that's some of what has been at play more recently in this consolidation period because of, of concerns about that concentration. It's it, The analogy that I think is often apt, not that we ever like to think about battlefields, but you know, when it's just a few soldiers at the front lines and or a few generals at the front lines and the soldiers have all fallen behind, that's not a very strong front. When you've got mm -hmm. the soldiers coming up to the front line, even if the generals start to step back, that's a stronger uh, battlefront. So that's a, an analogy that I think helps put that concentration risk in context. So just to make sure I'm understanding, you know, the, the run up, especially since the bank crisis has really been concentrated in some of these mega cap companies and until a month or so ago and yeah. now in the last month or so are the to continue your analogy are the soldiers catching up or are the generals falling back to where the soldiers were for a while there it was a little bit of both so you had convergence happening where you saw some profit taking uh, amongst that small handful of names while you at the same time you were starting to see broader participation down the cap spectrum into other areas of the market that hadn't participated. More recently, what they call market breadth, the, the percentage of stocks that are doing um, well, that has rolled over and you've seen deterioration pretty much across the, the board. And, and that's why I call it a corrective phase or a consolidation phase. Prior to that, you were seeing this convergence where, you know, the generals had taken a few steps back, but more soldiers. Um, and that for a while looked like a healthy development. Now we've seen a bit of broader deterioration in breadth. There's probably still a bit more 
to go on the downside there before I think the market can find more stable footing. Do you think this recent consolidation or just generally the sentiment in the market tells us anything useful about the broader economy? So sentiment, investor sentiment and more economic sentiment measures like CEO confidence or consumer sentiment, they don't always tell the same story. There can sometimes be some overlap. In fact, some of the consumer confidence or consumer sentiment measures have the questions embedded in the surveys. Um, they, They have one or two about the stock market. So sometimes a strong stock market can help boost more economic measures of sentiment and vice versa. But what was interesting in the last couple of months is at the kind of end of May, beginning of June, when we saw the most extreme concentration, there was also a lot of frothiness that had come into investor sentiment indicators. Uh, extreme high level of bullishness on some of the survey-based measures of sentiment like AAII, American Association of Individual Investors. You were seeing huge inflows into equity ETFs, especially tech-oriented ones. At the same time, there was still a lot of consternation expressed in some of these more economic sentiment measures by CEOs, by consumers. Now, investor sentiment at extremes tends to represent a contrarian indicator, not with anything resembling perfect timing. But my favorite thing ever said about the stock market goes right to the heart of sentiment as a driver. And it was probably the most famous phrase uh, ever uttered by the late great Sir John Templeton. And it's uh, bull markets are born on pessimism. They grow on skepticism. They mature on optimism and they die on euphoria. And I think there's not a more perfect description of a full equity market cycle. Maybe what's compelling about that phrase is that there's no word in there that ties into what we think on a day-to-day basis drives the stock market, what we focus on, earnings and valuation and PE ratios and economic data and Fed policy. It's all uh, emotions. And there's probably... Nothing better that defines major bottoms in the market and major tops in the market, not every little wiggle, than extremes of sentiment. Um, Launch points for bull markets tend to come when sentiment is incredibly despairing and and vice versa. So uh, that's what I spend probably more time focused on um, than the other more technical, economic, valuation-oriented uh, metrics. I think that really defines market cycles probably better than any other set of indicators. That's really fascinating. You know, I obviously, you look at the stock market, you see all this complex technical analysis, and I'm sure that still has use, but it's really interesting to know. And it sort of makes sense that behavior and psychology is really driving uh, the entire market. It's not only the market, you know, behavior and psychology drives inflation. Behavior and psychology drives the economy. The whole notion of animal spirits is embedded in in everything that that we do and observe and, and how we live. And it it's not just a, a, a market phenomenon. It's a, it's an economic uh, phenomenon, you know, animal spirits and and fear and greed, and it comes in play in in everything that we do. Absolutely, and a great stock trading uh, podcast, Animal Spirits, as well. Um, I, you know, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, but the data analyst in me now wants to know how I can measure <laughs> sentiment <laughs> and psychology. Is there a good way to do that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's myriad ways to do it. I would say the first thing is to understand that there are two broad buckets of sentiment indicators. And now I'm talking investor sentiment, not economic sentiment. Um, there's attitudinal measures and behavioral measures. So attitudinal measures would be something like the AAII survey. It's a weekly survey of their tens of thousands of members. They've been doing this since the, the late 1980s. And based on the questions... You, they they come up with three categories of investors, bullish, bearish, neutral. And then they apply percentages to how many are bullish, you know, how many are bearish, how many are neutral. But that's purely an attitudinal-based survey. They're getting on the phone and saying, are you optimistic? Are you not? Hmm. Interestingly, 
AAII also does a monthly analysis of the actual exposure to equities, to fixed income, to cash of their same members. And what's really interesting is there are times where what investors are saying and what they're doing are diametrically opposed. <laughs> and that was the case a little more than a year ago in June of 2022, when the market was really first kind of struggling into what was a pretty significant low at that point. You saw, I think, a, a record or a near record percent of bears in that survey, but they hadn't lowered equity exposure. Hmm. So they were saying, I don't like the market, but they actually hadn't acted <laughs> on that That's view. So you also have to look at behavioral measures of sentiment. AAII, that allocation uh, survey represents that. Um, something like the put-call ratio in the options market. Um, that's a behavioral measure of sentiment. Fund flows, the amount of money going into equity ETFs or equity mutual funds. That's a behavioral measure. There are other attitudinal measures too. One of them is investors intelligence, which looks at the advisors um, that write newsletters and and just hmm. writers that are just out there writing investment newsletters. That's an attitudinal measure because it's not tied to what the advisor is doing. It's how they're expressing their views in in the public domain. So I look at I look at all of them. Um, so it, it's the the amalgamation that's important um, and understanding that you've got to see whether the behavioral side matches the attitudinal side. Sometimes they can be disconnected. That's fascinating. You know, just using your example from June of last year, do you think the disconnect comes from a lack of other options? Like no people didn't know where else to put their money or what do you attribute the contrast there to? Well, you know, in June of last year, you we we knew we were in a very aggressive tightening cycle. The Fed had started to raise rates in March. They were also shrinking the balance sheet. So that was seen as a big near-term negative. June of last year was also the month that there was a nine handle on the consumer price index. So inflation was at its peak at that point. You were starting to see deterioration in a lot of the economic uh, data, particularly expectations tied to inflation. So it was just a confluence of things happening at that particular time. And the market was weak. So people were reacting in surveys to weak action. They just hadn't really done much yet at that point. What Fast forward to the October low, the attitudinal side matched the behavioral side. You were back in sort of washout mode, kind of despair in the attitudinal measures, but you had had capitulation behaviorally. What I often like to say is sort of the, I'll use a real technical term here, Dave, the puke phase where, <laughs> you know, everybody is just, you know, I, I'm out. It wasn't Ejecting. quite as extreme yeah. <laughs> as, as, as times like March of 2009, but you, you finally had that better balance between pessimism behaviorally and pessimism attitudinally. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. Thank you for explaining that. I want to shift a little bit to some recent market events, which is we are recording this on the 17th of August, just so everyone knows. And just in the last few days, bond yields have started to run up pretty aggressively. Obviously, that has implications for the equities markets and for real estate investors. We care a lot about this due to their correlation to mortgage rates. So I'm just curious if you can help us understand why yields have been rising so quickly. Well, um, some of the economic data has been better than expected. So as a tie-in to what's going on in the economy, you can point uh, there. But you also have to remember, and it's amazing to me how many investors still don't grasp the relationship between bond yields and stock prices, I mean, and bond prices. Um, they move in inverse to one another. So when bond yields are going up, it means prices are going down. So sometimes the yield movement can be driven by what's going on in the economy, but sometimes with supply demand fundamentals, the aggressiveness of the buyers or the sellers can move the price, which in turn moves the yield. And I think on the price side of things, what has kind of conspired to bring prices down is increased supply of treasuries in the aftermath of, of getting through the, the debt ceiling potential debacle. Mm -hmm. But we also had the, the recent Fitch downgrade of U.S. Uh, debt. 
So I, I, I think the, the supply demand issues put downward pressure on prices, all else equal puts upward pressure on yields. And then you have that, for the most part, better than expected economic um, data. And you've uh, seen you know, a breakout on the upside. There's also, you know, there's a lot of money in the equity market that trades off of technical speculative money that's short, more short term in, in nature. And it might be algo driven or quant based and, and triggered off certain technical levels. Well, there's also money that does that in the fixed income side of things. So uh, sometimes a move down in price and a move up in yield can sort of feed on itself and the speculators will you know, play that momentum uh, at some point. So you, you could see some momentum driven trading that has potentially exacerbated the move beyond what the fundamentals might suggest. And do you have any idea or thoughts on whether yields will stay this high? You know, so my colleague, uh, Kathy Jones, is my counterpart on the fixed income side. So she's our chief fixed income uh, strategist. Um, I, I, I say it without really meaning it as a joke, but 15 years ago or so when Schwab brought Kathy on was a joyous day in my life because that's when I was able to stop pretending like I was an expert on <laughs> in the fixed income side of things. So very important caveat. I don't I don't spend my you know waking hours deep diving on the fixed income side, but I can certainly she's she's part of our larger group um, can parrot some of the thinking there. And, you know, for the past year plus yields have been somewhat range bound kind of, you know, low threes to low fours and you've been bouncing up and down, but we seem to be breaking out on the, the upside. It, there probably is going to be some pressure at some point where yields don't go too far um, higher unless we really see surprising not resilience in inflation, but sort of a turn back um, higher in the inflation data, or if the expectations around Fed policy um, start to really shift as a result of that. All that said, what I don't think, let's let's assume 4.3 is a near-term high in yields. And let's assume the market is right in pricing in rate cuts starting next year. Now, I disagree with the market's perception of that, but we can talk about that separately. Um, what I don't think is going to happen is when yields start to come down, when the Fed is done, when they eventually have to start cutting rates again, we are not going back to the what we call the ZERP world, the zero interest rate. Um, which at the time that the U.S. for many years was at 0% interest rates, a lot of the rest of the world was actually in negative territory. Um, I, I think that ship has sailed. And the next easing cycle, barring some extreme shock to the financial or economic system globally, I, I think that experiment in zero interest rate policy and negative interest rate policy is one that for the most part was seen as having more uh, in the fail column than in the success uh, column. I think it bred capital misallocation, uh, lack of price discovery, um, zombie companies. And so I, I don't think we head back to 0% uh, interest rates. I also think we're also entering into a more volatile inflation secular environment. The great moderation, as a, the, that term was coined by Larry Summers, and it kind of stuck and it defined the period from the late 90s up until the pandemic, where you basically had declining inflation the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, it, and that was because the world had abundant and cheap access to goods, to energy, to labor. We were in the massive globalization uh, surge, China coming into the world economic order. All of those ships have sailed. And I think we're going back to what was the 30-year period or so prior to the Great Moderation. I, there's no coined term for it. The one I've been using, maybe it'll take off like Great Moderation, is the temperamental era, which wasn't a inflation is high and stays high in perpetuity. There was just a lot more volatility inflation and in turn, more volatility in terms of what the Fed had to do to uh, sort of combat uh, the problem. And I don't think this is the 1970s, but I think we're in a more volatile inflation backdrop. So in, in addition to 
maybe the zero interest rate policy being somewhat of a, a failed or controversial at best experiment, you think the Fed needs to keep some ammunition, if you will, by even if there is a pullback in the labor market, keeping rates a little bit high so that they have some wiggle room if there is, uh, you know, some volatility and inflation. So not only wiggle room to come lower, but I, I think the lesson that the current Fed and Powell specifically, um, I think, takes from looking at the experience of the 1970s was not so much the playbook of the drivers being similar. They're, they're quite different. Is that the problem in the 1970s was declaring victory a couple of times prematurely, easing mm -hmm. policy only to see inflation get let out of the bag again, scramble to tighten policy again, hang the mission accomplished banner, rates go down again, inflation's let out of the bag again. And that's ultimately what led to Paul Volcker having to come in and pull a Paul Volcker <laughs> by just jamming up interest rates, almost purposely bringing on the back-to-back -back recessions of the early 80s in the interest of really finally breaking the back of inflation. And I, I think that's really, that's why I think there's a disconnect between what we're facing here in the current environment in terms of growth and inflation and the market's expectation right now that we could, that the Fed could cut us at least five times next year. Mm -hmm. And I think the market hasn't quite come to grips with the message the Fed is trying to impart, which is once we pause, once we get to the terminal rate, the stopping point, the inclination is to stay there for a while, mm -hmm. not to quickly turn and start easing policy again, because they want to make sure that inflation has not only come down, but it is likely to to stay contained. Yeah. And they have cover to do that, right? Because the labor market continues to show pretty good strength. GDP is not amazing, but it's, you know, it's still up. So it feels like unless they not only have cover no this for them, right? To do it. That's, that's the better way to think of it. That's where I think the disconnect is. It's almost a be careful what you wish for, because an environment that suggests the Fed has to, as soon as the beginning of next year, go into fairly aggressive rate cutting mode. That's not a great economic backdrop. Yeah. And this idea that simply if inflation continues to come down, that that represents a green light for the Fed to cut doesn't make a lot of sense. It it does support a pause, mm -hmm. um, but the pivot to rate cuts, I I, I think the, the Fed's bias, especially with a 3.4% unemployment rate, the Fed's bias is once they get to the terminal rate is to stay there for a while. Yeah, I, I, that that makes total sense to me. I mean, unless there is a a reason, an economic driver for them to cut rates, they're not just going to do it just to supercharge the economy. I, in, at least it doesn't seem like. Well, the only um, I think rational thought behind why the Fed could start cutting next year without there being, you know, a clear recession in sight, without significant deterioration in the labor market is if disinflation persists at the point the Fed is no longer raising rates and they're holding steady, the fact that inflation continues to come down means real rates are going up. Mm -hmm. And so some are thinking that they they don't want to establish the conditions for restrictive policy getting more restrictive, even though they're not doing anything. But with inflation continuing to come down, it means real rates are going up. So there is some rational thought there. That makes sense. Um, it's just a question of whether real rates going up and being restrictive, whether the Fed views that as starting to represent potential damage for the economy. All else equal, I think the Fed's inclination is to sit tight for a while. And does that mean you're not forecasting a, a break in the labor market or a recession anytime in the near future? So we've been, for more than a year now, we've been calling this uh, a rolling recession, kind of rolling sectoral recessions. And hmm. that is somewhat unique, uh, certainly unique relative to the past two recessions, which were kind of bottom falls out all at once across 
the economy, different drivers each time. Obviously, the pandemic caused a bottom falls out all at once because the world shut down their economies. So that was that was unique, but that was an all at once, everything all at once. To some degree, that was the same thing in uh, 07 to 09, particularly the worst part of the financial crisis with the combination of the Bear Stearns failure and the Lehman failure and the housing uh, bubble bursting. And because of the trillions of dollars in the alphabet soup of derivatives attached to the mortgage market in a massively over leveraged global financial system, you know, the housing market busted and it took down the entire global financial system with it. So that's sort of everything all at once type recessions. This one, not that any of us want to relive the last three and a half years associated with the (laughs) pandemic, but it's important to go back to that point, the point where the stimulus was kicking in, courtesy of the Fed, courtesy of uh, the fiscal side of, of Treasury and Congress. And that money, the demand associated with it, all that stimulus at that time was forced to be funneled into narrow segments of the economy, particularly the goods side of the economy, housing, housing related, consumer electronics, you know, Peloton machines, um, Zoom equipment, et cetera, because we had no access to services. That was the launch for the economy to come out of the recession, but it was heavily goods oriented. That was also the breeding ground of the inflation problem we're still dealing with. And it was exacerbated at the time by the supply disruptions. So that was the initial stage of this. But since then, those categories, manufacturing, housing, housing related, a lot of consumer oriented uh, goods, electronics, et cetera, leisure, those have gone into recessions. It's just been offset by the later strength in services. Same thing has happened within the inflation data. You had a massive surge in inflation initially on the goods side. Then you went into disinflation. And in some categories, we're in outright deflation. But we've had the later pickup on the services uh, side. Services is a larger employer, which helps to explain the resilience in the, the labor market. So we've seen the weakness roll through. It hasn't yet hit to a significant degree services or the labor market. To me, best case scenario is not so much soft landing because that ship already sailed for the segments of the economy that have had their hard landing is that if and when services and the labor market start to get hit, that you've got offsetting recovery in some of Mm -hmm. the areas that have already gone through their uh, recessions. So I I just think you have to look at this cycle in a more nuanced way. Um, That said, if somebody said, all right, you know, feet to the fire, Lizanne, you've got to say yes or no in terms of will the NBER mm-hmm. at some point say, okay, recession, I would say yes. Okay. Well, I liked your much more nuanced uh, answer anyway. I think we've, we've talked on the show a few times that the, the label recession has almost lost its meaning in a mm-hmm. way because, you know, it doesn't actually describe the conditions that we're seeing and doesn't actually give you any actionable insight that you could base your your decisions off of. Well, it's so lagging too. You know, the the NBER, the day they make the announcement, it's a recession. And they've been, you know, the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, they've been the official arbiters of recession since 1978. Um, they it's not two quarters in a row of negative GDP. That's never been the definition. I don't know why people think that's the definition, but it's not. Um, They look at a lot of different uh, variables, but simultaneous on the day the NBER says, okay, it's a recession, they announce the start, which is by month, not by day. They go back to the peak in the aggregate of the data that they're tracking, which is why if you were to look at a whole roster of data points, looking back at what we know were the start points of each recession's. The data actually at that time looked pretty good. Mm -hmm. What you didn't know at that time was the descent would be significant enough that it reached a a low level sufficient enough to say, okay, it's a recession. The dating it then goes back to the aggregate uh, peak. Um, The average lag in terms of the NBER saying, okay, it's a recession. And when they backdated as having started is seven months. And sometimes it's even longer. The NBER Mm -hmm. came out in December of 08 and said, okay, we're in a recession. 
By the way, it started a year ago. Right. Yeah. Thanks for letting us know. <laughs> and when the NBER announced recession associated with the pandemic, when they announced that there was a recession mm-hmm. and here's when it started, it was actually already over at that point. But it was another 15 months before they said, OK, it's over. And it ended 15 months ago. So this idea of, well, why don't I just wait as an investor? Why don't I just wait until the coast is clear we know we've had a recession. We know it's over. It's been declared as over. You know, stock market's a leading indicator. Man, mm-hmm. you have missed <laughs> a lot of the move on the upside. Yeah, like you said, it is it is by definition a retroactive label. Like you it, you you can't use it to make decisions, which is an excellent uh, transition to the last topic I wanted to get into, which is you know, for, for our audience, people who are probably mostly invested in real estate, but I would hope are still considering investing into bonds and stocks as well. Like what strategy would you recommend in these sort of confusing and uncertain times? Um, there is no one cookie cutter answer that's right for all investors. And that's really important because I think particularly in the world of financial media, there is either a desire for the cookie cutter answer or just there, there's just not a willingness to provide the time for the real answer to questions around, you know, how do I invest? What should I do with my money? Um, it, it's, you know, the, the financial media in particular, it's all about, you know, should I get in? Should I get out? And I always say neither get in nor get out is an investing strategy. That's just gambling on two moments in time. So the first thing is to actually have a plan. And that plan has to be tied to your own personal circumstances, the obvious ones like time horizon, um, but also risk tolerance. And sometimes people make the mistake of equating the two, meaning I've got a long time horizon, therefore I'm risk tolerant. I should take a lot of risk. That What then comes into play is the other really important thing you need to do is try to assess before you make the mistake and learn the hard way whether your financial risk tolerance, kind of what's on paper, how much money do I need to live on? You know, how much do I want to try to save? Do I need to live on the income associated with my investments or I just want the appreciation to to grow the, 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 you know, the sum, the retirement uh, nest egg? That's your financial risk tolerance. But if you get the first, you know, 15% drop in your portfolio because you go into a bear market and you panic and sell everything, your emotional risk tolerance is entirely different from your mm-hmm. financial risk tolerance. So trying to gauge that. And then those other facets of, you know, when I always say, when somebody will say to me, um, you know, what are you telling investors to do? And I always answer that even if I had a little birdie land on my shoulder and tell me with 97% certainty what the stock market was going to do over the next whatever year or two, what the bond market's going to do, what commodities are going to do. And I had that information, very high conviction. But I was sitting across from two investors, investor A, 75 years old, retired, built a nest egg, can't afford to lose any of it, and needs to live on the income generated from that. Investor B is 25 years old. They go skydiving on the weekends. They inherited $10 million that they don't need. They don't, they're not going to open (laughs) their statements every month and freak out at the first. So one high conviction view, almost perfect knowledge of what the markets are going to do. What I would tell those two investors is entirely different. So it all is a function of your personal situation, your risk tolerance, um, your need for income, um, uh, your, your, the, the emotions that come into play. And so you got to have a plan. I absolutely love that. I'm smiling because, you know, in real estate, we talk about that a lot as well, because people want to know what buy for cash flow, buy for appreciation, you know, buy in different types of markets. And there is no one size fits all advice for any type of investment. Like if you're approaching your retirement, are you 22 years old? Do you have a high income? Do you have a low income? It's completely different. And like you said, with media, people want a quick answer. But if you want to be a successful investor, you have to root your strategy in your own personal desires and to your point, your own psychology and behavior. That's right. And maybe it's a little more boring to talk about things like diversification across and within asset classes and have a plan and be diversified and 
periodic rebalancing. Maybe it's not as exciting as the market is really expensive here. I think a crash is coming and I think it might happen, you know, by next Tuesday. And then, you know, you want to be an aggressive buyer. That's that's just gambling on moments in time and investing should be a disciplined process over time. Yeah. One gets a lot of YouTube views and the other one's actually a good investing strategy. Sometimes those are at odds. Yeah. And don't, and don't get investment advice from yeah. TikTok or, or, or YouTube. It can be a component of, of good information, but make sure it's in the context of an actual plan and the education associated with that. Absolutely. Like it could inform your strategy, but you can't take their strategy. Right. I think there's like a difference between those two approaches. 100%. All right. Well, Lizanne, thank you so much for being here. This was this was a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure. If anyone wants to follow your work, where should they do that? Well, interestingly, our research, uh, everything that I write, videos that I do, my my counterparts in international and fixed income, all of our research is actually on public site Schwab.com. You don't have to be a client. You don't have to have a login. So all of our research is on, on Schwab.com. Um, but I'm also on, I guess we don't call it Twitter anymore. So I'm on, <laughs> um, I'm on X and I post yes. everything that I write, all the videos that I do, TV appearances, promote, you know, podcasts um, and day to day, minute to minute charts and information and reaction to economic reports coming out. So that's probably the most efficient way to, to kind of get everything. But I've had a rash of imposters. So just make sure oh, you're the following worst. the actual uh, <laughs> at Lizanne Saunders. <laughs> we will put a link to your your profile in the show. Um, I've been following you on Twitter. That's how I, I first found out about you. Excellent. Not, well, X, an X. I've been following you on X, whatever you say now. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, great information just about the economy. Um, super digestible as well. So highly Thank recommend you. it. Lizanne, thanks again. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Another big thank you to Liz Ann Saunders for joining us. Honestly, that is truly one of my favorite interviews that I have ever done. I think Liz Ann does an incredible job just explaining what is going on in the economy and what's going on in the stock market. And I know not everyone who listens to the show is super invested into the stock market, but I think there's some really interesting and important takeaways here. One thing I was really fascinated about was just about how much Investor sentiment really drives behavior and drives the economy. And it's not always all of these sort of technical, financial, monetary policy things that I definitely am always obsessing over, like Fed policy or what's going on with certain indicators. And it just makes you realize that obviously the economy is just an amalgamation of human behavior. And so you should just be paying attention to as much as you can sort of sentiment. I think that is broadly applicable to the real estate market. Just think about something like for example, the the lock-in effect. That is something that is, sure, it's financial, it is rational in some ways, but it is in a lot of ways psychological and behavioral. And that is really driving a lot of what's going on in the market right now. Or, you know, people's fear, you know, feel, feeling of competition in the housing market that might be driving demand right now. Not everything is entirely rational and a lot of it is based on market sentiment. So I absolutely love that thing. And then the second thing I just wanted to call out was her explanation the quote unquote rolling recession, I think was the best explanation of the economy that I've heard to date. I, I, I slacked because, you know, Kaylin, our producer and I, we have a little chat going to make sure the show flows well. And I said to her, I think I finally understand economics during that part of the show because it was just so it really helped understand that there's like these waves of economic activity and not everything is the same we saw this uptick in goods inflation and that sort of calmed down but then we saw this uptick in service inflation and that is starting to come down but that's you know a strong employer and why we haven't seen as much of a decline in the labor market as you might see so i thought this was so interesting and absolutely if you couldn't tell loved her comments at the end about how strategy whether you're a real estate investor or a stock market investor really just has to come from you and your own personal circumstances i was nerding about out about that and very excited about that because i'm actually writing a whole book about that topic 
for real estate investors. It's due in two weeks. So it's all I'm thinking about right now. And it comes out in January. So you're probably going to want to check that out, hopefully. Thank you all so much for listening. If you love this show as much as I did, please give us a five-star review either on Apple or on Spotify or share this with a friend. Maybe you have someone who's interested in investing in the stock market or just wants to learn more about the economy. I think this is a great episode to share with really anyone you know. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you for the next episode of On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.